Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we'd love to be part of our Vine Kids time. Likewise, our middle school age kids, five, six, seven, eight, they're going out this door into the back, the back 40 there. We'd love for all of you all to be a part of what we have, have going on. So as I mentioned, um, you know, we, we, uh, we have been for the past couple years going through the Gospel of John. We're actually going to wrap, start that process of wrapping that up in just a few weeks. But we've been going through that. We took a break before Advent. So way back in November, we kind of paused the Gospel of John, kind of worked through Advent, did some stuff at the beginning of the year where I was just sort of exploring things that God was pressing on my heart personally. And, and then we started this little three-week series last week. Um, that we're kind of in the middle of today, and in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to jump back into John and wrap that up as we head towards Easter, just those of you that are interested in sort of the overall kind of trajectory. But last week, we started a little process, and each year, we do this every year. Usually, we do it at the end of October and November, uh, where we stop and we look at the year to come, and we begin to talk about what we believe God is leading us to, calling us to as a community. We talk a little bit about our vision and really more who we want to become and the church that we are and the church would be like, feel like God is leading us to be. And I sort of lay out some vision and some ideas. And we talk about how to be great stewards of the resources that God has blessed us with both in terms of time and people and financial. And we do that way back when, but this year we've moved it back a little bit because we started this uh, campaign to kind of build out the back. And so that kind of threw us off a little bit, and then we stepped into to, uh, Advent or whatever. So now we're kind of a little bit late to the game, but we're doing this process nonetheless because it's really important. It's important for us as a church to have a heartbeat, a vision that says, God, where are you leading and how do we follow? And it's important for you to know what's on my heart and what's on the heart of our elders as we begin to think about the upcoming year. We want you to be a part of the vision of the church as it moves forward and pursues the things that we believe that God is calling us to. So we've kind of entitled this little series, All of Me. It's built around Matthew 22. We began that process last week, and we're kind of doing it by walking through our church's approach to life. Now, for those of you who have been here for some time, you know our approach to life is built on our mission statement. Our mission statement is that we want to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one and to the city and the world. How do we do that? We do that by our approach to life, which is to love God, love people, follow Jesus. A lot of churches have those things. Ours comes directly out of Matthew 22, as you'll see and as you heard last week. We want to love God, who should be our first love. We want to love people, who should be our second love. And we want to follow Jesus, intentionally put our feet in the places that he put his feet, in our hands, the places that he put his hands. So we're looking this sort of idea of and vision of 2019 and who we believe God is calling us and leading us to be through the lens of that approach. And last week we talked about that first idea. What does it mean to truly love God? What does it mean to have God as our very first love above our husbands, our wives, our children, our jobs, all of those things? Because anything that takes the place of our first love is actually nothing less than idolatry. Anything in our lives, whether it's a person or a thing or a finance or resources or a car or a dream or whatever it is, anything that takes the places of our first, our first love, the Bible's very clear about saying it's simple idolatry. In other words, we're beginning to worship something and the place where only our first love should be. And we unpacked that idea of first love. And we talked about, in light of that, having being a church and being individuals that said, God, you are who I desire and long for first and foremost. You are enough for me. And we explored that and we put a vision piece with it and put a word with it that we called, that we basically used was depth. That we are looking for in 2019, few things when it comes to depth. We want to grow in terms of depth of our knowledge of God's word. 
You're going to begin to see more opportunities for us to dive into Bible study together, different groups of people that are going to be pursuing different things in terms of learning how to read and understand and grow in knowledge of God's Word. I talked about how that's sort of even how we preach around here anyway. We want you to fall in love with God's Word and not tweetable quotes by things that the preachers say. We want you to have a love affair with God's Word, and we want you to grow in your knowledge of it. How does the Old Testament fit into this? How do these prophets tie into this? What was Jesus doing here? How do I love and know the Word of God? That's what really matters to us. And we want you to grow in it. We want to grow in it. We as a church, we want to grow in our depth and knowledge of God's Word. We also want to grow in depth of relationships. We talked about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with people. We want you to mature and grow to know Jesus more. We want you to trust him and release more of your fears to him and, and believe that he is enough for you and your family. We talked about growing in a place where you knew people in this space, that you exist in a church where you know and you're known, right? What it would be to, like to have real relationships where you came to a church where you mattered to people and they mattered to you. And then we weren't counting numbers just to try and fill a building, but instead when you were gone, you were missed. And when people were gone, they were missed. And we want to be known and exist in this sort of culture of real relationship. We talked about the, our desire to do that and the importance of pushing life groups and community and things that really matter and family camps and all these kind of pieces that make that a reality, right? So we talked about that. And then we talked about depth of involvement, um, that this church operates because people want to love each other. What would it look like in 2019 if you actually got really deeply entangled in this mess, right? We sort of explored that. And I put all that out there because that was sort of the things that were tied to our first piece, right? This idea under all of me that says, I want to be in love with my first love. And as part of that, I want to grow in my knowledge of his word, my relationship with him, my relationship with people, and my involvement in his church. First piece. This morning, we're going to take a look at the second piece, which is really what I'm just simply calling our second love. If the Lord is our first love, and we're really looking at Matthew 22, then people have to be our second love, because Jesus tells us they are. So we don't get to actually say, you know what, I'm not really a people person. The truth is, if you follow Jesus, you'll have a lot of choice. We are all people, people, right? And so we're going to explore that second love today by glancing briefly at Matthew 22, but then diving into Luke 10, which is sort of a, a much bigger, deeper, much bigger and deeper sort of exploration of that. But for those of you that remember, Matthew 22 is a fascinating piece of text because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they want to trap Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their way of life, right? You know all this. We've been through all these things a hundred times. He threatened their very existence. He threatened their way of life. They were uh, very much interested in kind of catching Jesus in a way that they could discredit him or arrest him because he was a threat to the religious and political life of Israel because Jesus turned all these paradigms upside down. So the Sadducees and Pharisees, the two leading religious groups at the time, were doing everything they could to trap Jesus. In Matthew 22, they are trying all kinds of ways to trap Jesus. And the Sadducees tried first. They were trying to catch Jesus in his words, and of course, Jesus couldn't be caught. So the Pharisees basically say, well, you did an okay job, but watch what we can do. And they huddle together and they get a lawyer, one of their experts in the law, which is a lawyer by all definitions. And they get this guy together and they say, let's ask Jesus a question that is basically going to trap him and we'll get him and he'll discredit him and maybe we can arrest him or he'll blasphemy or something and we'll be able to, to really catch Jesus tripping over his own words. And so the expert of the law comes up with a question and the question is, teacher, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment, right? And it's a loaded question because there's actually 613 Mosaic commands and Jesus picking one over the other was going to basically put him in a place where they could then say, aha, but what about this or what about that? But Jesus isn't ever tricked or anything like that. So, of course, without even thinking about it, he responds to the question. 
And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which, of course, Jesus doesn't take these 613 Mosaic laws and just pick one. He actually takes this sort of a, a hodgepodge of things, including a piece of the Shema, which is this sort of Jewish liturgical prayer that comes out of Deuteronomy. And he says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Let me tell you, it's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, meaning love God first. They don't even ask for a second one, but he gives them one anyway. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So everything that you're trying to trap me with hangs on the reality of your call to love God and love people. So the call of someone that would follow or proclaim to follow the Lord is that we love God first. That love influences how we love people. So there is a first and a second love. That God should be my first love. That everything in my life should be subordinate to that idea of loving God. That he is enough for me. He is more important than all of the things that I have in my world, including the people in it. That he is my first love. And as a church, that has got to be our deepest first love. Aside from our goals and our buildings and our stuff and our plans and all the material things that we could build into a space or dreams we have for ourselves or t-shirts with our slogans or stickers on cars or whatever right? would be, God, we love you, first and foremost. And if you take it all away, that's okay. We want to love you. We want to follow you. And our love for people is what is driven by how we love you. Because you love us, it changes the way that we think about people. So Luke chapter 10, all that to say, Luke chapter 10 actually takes this one step further. In a very similar sort of exchange, we're going to see another teacher of the law not really ask Jesus the same question, but he's actually going to quote Jesus' words back to him and try and get to a place where he can feel justified in his own life. And Jesus is going to teach him a very famous parable. And that's where we're going to spend our time, talking about our second love, right? The call of a follower of Christ to love people. How do we do that? Who do we have to love? And what does it look like? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 25. I know it's a big setup, but I want you to understand how our, our, our idea of all of me is tying into these pieces. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll work through it together. God, I thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. You tell us that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is your word. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we do not take it lightly. Lord, we gather here this morning asking you to teach our hearts, to renew our passion for you, our Lord, and your passion for people, that you would instill that in us. That we would be a church and individuals that were driven by our dynamic love for the Lord because you loved us first, and our dynamic love for people because you call us to. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. No matter how many times you've heard this parable or how many times it's echoed through your heart or you've read it, ask the Lord to teach you something fresh, something new. Just whisper that to the Lord this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you. We do this each week. We want to be a church that's in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for somebody. Pray that God would move in them. Maybe you don't even know their name. Just pray for them.
Lord, we ask that you would be glorified through your word, that you would teach our hearts. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So very similar interaction is going to kind of take place in Luke chapter 10. It's not the same interaction that happens in Matthew, okay? So keep that in mind. Different, but similar. This is what happens, and we'll kind of walk through it. On one occasion, an expert, verse 25, one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw the man and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where his man was, and he saw him and he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he took the man down on the donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. Which of these three do you think was his neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert said, the expert of the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Not a new parable, right? Like hopefully the parable of the Good Samaritan is one that you're familiar with. It sort of mingled its way through our common kind of lexicon in terms of our cultural, you know, a Good Samaritan, someone who does good deeds for other people. But Jesus is actually doing something really interesting here. He's not just talking about being nice to people. He's not saying make sure that when someone needs help and you open their door, like a a kind of a good task or a good deed. Jesus is actually explaining something holy else. So this expert of the law says, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Right? He wants to test Jesus. He wants to test Jesus' knowledge of the things of God and the law and how it relates to what happens when we die. So different scenario than the first, but he wants to test Jesus. He wants to see what he knows, and he wants to see if Jesus is going to basically say, you're going to make it or you're not. And so he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus returns it back to him, right, and says, well, what does the law say, and how do you read it? Well, then the teacher, right, the expert, actually recites something that Jesus probably said multiple, multiple times, even says in Matthew 22, because this is not written in scripture this way. But the lawyer actually had heard Jesus say it so many times that he actually almost repeats it verbatim, what Jesus has said. So what does the law say? How do you read it? And so the lawyer actually repeats back to Jesus what Jesus had said, not what the law said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, the version of the Shema, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a version of Leviticus 19.8, which is what Jesus had been saying, right, to the Pharisees, most likely, time and time and time again. So how do I inherit eternal life? How do you read the law? Well, this is what you say about the law. And Jesus says, you're correct. And then Luke says, the expert in the law was kind of looking to justify himself, saying, so okay, if that's how I can be saved, who do I really have to love? Like, 
What is actually my neighbor? Because I want to do whatever the minimum is to get that law done so that I can inherit eternal life, right? It's a loaded question. He wants to basically say, who's my neighbor and how do I have to love them? Because that's what I'll do to make sure I do it. But I don't want to do a whole lot else. So he says, who is my neighbor? Because he's looking to basically justify his own life and actions. And Jesus launches into this really famous parable, right? And the parable goes something like this. There was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was a city built on a hill. Jericho was down by the Red Sea. Jerusalem's about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho's down by the coast, and it's, or by the coast of the Dead Sea, which is about 1,300 feet below sea level. So in about 15 to 20 miles, it drops about 3,600 feet in these crazy winding roads. I was actually there in March, and I'm going to have Mike put a picture up here. I actually took this picture in March of the actual original road. And you can, it'll in the back. shouldn't sit back there. You can't see good stuff. This right here is actually the road. You can trace it all the way through there. It comes all the way up, wanders through here, comes down this road here. This is the actual original road that led from Jerusalem, which is up here on top of the cross. No kind of spiritual connection there. To the Dead Sea, which you can actually see. If you look just in that little valley there, the mountains on the other side, right? That's Jordan. Just underneath those mountains, you can see the Dead Sea. That's the water. This road... The original road led all the way from Jericho down that path and then all the way up to Jerusalem. It's no wider than probably what I can stretch my hands across, but it was notoriously dangerous. It was the only real road that led that way. It was also called the Roman road. It was a road that led from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. It was a really dangerous highway. All kinds of places that robbers could hide, nooks and crannies and whatnot. You never really traveled it alone. But in Jesus' point of his parable essentially is, this man was leaving Jerusalem and headed down to Jericho, walking 15 miles down this road when he happened upon a bunch of robbers and they beat him basically half to death. So they left him there to die, took all of his treasures and wares and all of those things, left him to die. And he says, of course, these are the people that come by. There was a priest who was leaving Jerusalem, heading to Jericho. Now, we know this about priestly service. They didn't work in the temple year-round. The, the priests were from the tribe of the Levites, and they would work several weeks a year, and they lived a lot of times in the surrounding towns, Jericho and the surrounding towns around Jerusalem. There wasn't a lot of space in the actual old city of Jerusalem for people to live. And so they lived around. They'd come and serve their few weeks a year, and then they would actually leave. And so this, this priest was leaving Jerusalem, where he probably was working in the temple, serving his time um, and he was heading down to the road. He sees this man laying on the side of the road, and he steps across, walks past him, right? For a lot of reasons, mainly because if you come in contact with blood or with a foreigner or whatever, you're made ceremonially unclean. There's all kinds of reasons why he wouldn't want to mess with him. Jesus says a Levite comes by, does the exact same thing. Now, this is real quick. I could spend all morning on this, but I won't. Priests and Levites were the same but different. So all priests came from the tribe of the Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So priests actually came from the family of Aaron. So if you could trace your lineage through Aaron's family, then you were a priest in the tribe of the Levites, which meant that you took care of all the ritual sacrifices in the temple. You were a part of the direct worship lineage and life of what happened inside the actual temple walls itself. Now, Levites were part of the worship culture. They often were guards. They would 
kind of protect the outer courts, but they did not participate in the offering of sacrifices like the tribe of Aaron or Aaron's family did within the tribe of the Levites. So both were really important religious people, families from the same tribe that God had set apart to lead the religious life of Israel. So basically Jesus is saying, all your important religious people came walking down the hill. The priests who were the super religious from the family of Aaron and the Levites who were the caretakers of all things worship were also. They walked by the same guy, they stepped to the other side of the road and Jesus says they kept on walking. Samaritan comes by, who we all know, right? We've talked about this at length in here, going through the Gospel of John in chapter 4. We actually talked about the Jews' hatred for the Samaritans. I mean, they hated the Samaritans. The reason they hated the Samaritans is they believed that the Samaritans, when they were conquered, when the Jewish northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, those Jewish people in the north intermarried with the Assyrians, and they created a mixed race of people that lived in Samaria. So they were Jews that were, had a mixed race. They didn't keep their bloodline pure. They actually intermarried with the Assyrians who were awful, terrible people, and the Jews hated them, and they were a horrific group of people that murdered children and all kinds of awful things. Well, the Jews that were taken by the Assyrians when the northern kingdom fell, they intermarried with them and had babies and families, and they became a mixed race of people known as the Samaritans, and they settled into that area that was the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Jewish people couldn't stand them. They were unclean. They believed they were unclean. And so most Jewish people that had to go north would not walk through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan 15 miles out of their way, walk around the entire country and go back, which is why it's so significant that Jesus walks right through Samaria in John chapter 4, where he sits at the well and meets a Samaritan woman. You remember all those things. Jesus, of course, went where nobody else would go in that religious culture. But a Samaritan who everybody hated right, who was unclean for all those purposes, comes along and he sees this guy, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn down there in Jericho somewhere, bandages him up, puts some wine and vinegar on his wounds, which I'm guessing is good for wounds, looks at the innkeeper and goes, hey, I put some wine on him. He should be all right in a little bit. But if he's not, I'm coming back and I will reimburse you for everything that he's gone through. And then Jesus looks at this expert in the law, who would have been a most likely a Pharisee, since he was an expert in the law. He looks at him and he says, which of these people was the man's neighbor? Not in in which of these people do you have to love, but he basically says, which of these people acted as his neighbor? And And of course, the expert in the law says, well, the one who had mercy on him, right? And Jesus says, that's right. Go and do likewise. So there's a powerful sort of explanation here about who is our neighbor, right? Where where we could really kind of spend some time going, well, the idea is that pretty much anybody that is in need is our neighbor. But really, Jesus is getting at something much bigger. And this idea that he's getting at is what does it mean to truly love your neighbor or love people? Because the first question that the Pharisee asks is how do I inherit eternal life? And essentially, eternal life begins with knowing that God has loved us. We believe in who he is. We love him in return, not of our own power, but because he has given us that ability by the knowledge of how he loves us. So our first understanding is that we cannot love people outside of knowing how much God loves us and what he has done for us. So the first and greatest commandment, of course, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. Luke throws in strength, part of the Shema, before we can ever understand what it means to love people. What that tells us in the church is that we cannot be a church that's driven by good deeds or good mission or good sacrifice because we want to make sure that culturally we are a church that cares about people. If we are not driven first and foremost by our first love, then our acts of service are simply acts of hollow service, right? It's said essentially that if you take Jesus out of mission, what you're left with is just good deeds and good deeds are empty. 
So the idea of loving people is that we have to be driven first by our love for the Lord. Why do we love people in the first place? People are hard to love. They're not easy. They're complicated. They take, they steal. They're all a mess. Why do we love them? It's much easier to not love them, right? I've told Brandon a hundred times, this would be so much easier without people. I probably said it this week. So much easier. Why do we love people? Because it's easy? Because we're naturally compelled to just be carers for people? No. We're naturally compelled by our own sinful nature to love ourselves. Love ourselves. We're actually going to see that in just a minute because the Pharisees, they loved them some Pharisees. Like no one loved themselves like they did. But as followers of Christ, we are compelled to think differently because we're driven by a different love. We're not driven by our first love, which is love for me. We're driven by our first love, which is love for the Lord. And the things that matter to him should matter to us. And Jesus loves people. He loves humanity. He spent time with humanity. God created humanity, right? Psalm 139 says that he knits us together in our mother's womb. So we love because he loved us first, and it compels us to love like he did. So how do we really love people? And that's what this expert of law is kind of getting at, which is how do I love people without really loving the Lord? How do I do something for someone without actually really being driven to really love like you love? That's kind of what the question's at. And for us, the question is, what does it truly mean to be a church that loves people? What does it truly mean to be a person that loves people? If that's going to matter to the Lord, it should matter to us. And as I glance at this passage, I really see several things that I want you to, to hold on to that are really simple but are right there in front of us that I think should drive you personally and me personally and should drive us as a church. So the first thing that we see unfolding in this passage is that we see people that were willing to open their eyes, right? All three men, because that's what we think we've got here, not trying to make any statements. They're just men that are walking down this road, and all three of them opened their eyes, and they actually saw what was in front of them. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan all saw a guy left half dead on the side of the road. Every single one of them saw the problem. They saw the hurt. They saw the person. They saw the brokenness. Every single one of them. In order to be someone that loves people, we have to be people that see other people's hurt, that open our eyes enough from our own world to look around us that remove our eyes from our phones or our social media or our own lives or work trajectories enough to look around us and realize that there are people with beating hearts and names that God puts in our life every single day. There's the checkout lady at the grocery store. There's the waitress or the waiter. There's the guy in the cubicle next to you. There's the mom at the PTO meeting. There's the person you ran into in the parking lot that just said hello. Every single one of them has a name and a beating heart. Every person standing on the side of the road that's holding a cardboard sign, every neighbor kid that you have on your street, no matter where they're from or what they look like, they all have names and they matter to the Lord. But most of us are so driven by what we have to accomplish next that we don't look up. Right? Many of us sit in our own families and don't look up. We sit at dinner with our phones. We sit at dinner engaging with our own sort of circumstances, not hearing cries from our own children, our own spouse. 
words of need or desperation within our own context, how are we supposed to see the context of the people around us? How are we supposed to know that the guy next to his marriage is falling apart and he's having severe questions on whether or not there even is it really a God? Or we pause enough at a restaurant to ask the lady that's waiting on us her name and how she is really doing and stick around long enough to listen. Most of us, heads down, task to task to task to task. If you open the Bible, this is not how Jesus operates. Never was Jesus in a hurry to get from one place to another. Jesus was the slowest pokey walker ever. He always bumped into people and spent time with, well, we were going to go here, we had this guy, this, that, da, 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 boom, boom. He just was driven by people. Not saying you cut your schedules. I'm not saying you don't do tasks. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying lift your head up. See the half-dead guy on the side of the road. And I'm talking metaphorically. Listen to people's words. If somebody asks you a spiritual question, they are not able to ask that question on their own. It is evidence that the Holy Spirit is doing something in them. If they say, hey, tell me what you think about this, and as a spiritual connotation, you can rest assured that God is doing something, pause, stop, listen. If you can't answer right then, set something else up. Follow back up, whatever it is. Lift your head up. Get your children to do the same. Lift your head up. Look at each other in the eyeballs, right? You've got to be able to be walking down the road and see hurt in front of you in order to really care for people. So all three men did this, right? All three men in our text saw the hurt. But the second thing you've got to do is you've got to soften your heart. The first two guys, the priest and Levite, who were very important religious people, they weren't bad people by all that we know. In fact, the text never says they're horrible humans. It just says that they're worship leaders. Essentially, they're a priest and a Levite in the kind of context of Israel. They didn't want to mess up their role. We don't know if they hated people or didn't want to help this guy. We, just, we don't know anything about him. We just know that they didn't have compassion on him. Hey, he's probably already dead. He's too far gone. I don't know that I can do anything for him. So, you know, I'll step to the other side of the road. Any sermon you've ever heard on this where they were more interested in their own religious upkeeping? We don't know any of that. They're just making stuff up. What we do know is that they just passed by. Who knows why? Maybe it was, I am in a hurry, or maybe it was, I, I don't want to get unclean, or maybe it just was, I think he's dead. Eh, what do you do? Either way, they all walked. But this third guy, the Samaritan, Jesus says something very significant. He says he had pity or took compassion on him. The word really translates took compassion, which means sort of felt for him. So the Samaritan has pity on him. He has his head up, he sees the problem, he sees the need, and he stops. Every single one of us, right, even if we're walking with our head up, has got to take that moment where we say, does my heart hurt for this person? I just heard my coworker tell me a little bit about how his marriage is broken. I know I need to finish this task. I can either get involved in this conversation or I can just say, man, I'm really sorry. Or I can say, well, tell me about that. I got compassion on you or, or someone that's lost something or, or is just hurting. There's a difference in listening or seeing them and actually having compassion. I got a neighbor on our street who recently lost her husband or, or, or has gone through a traumatic event. And so I want to not just feel bad for them over here, but I'm going to have compassion and say, I want to engage whatever is happening here. Where head is up, we begin to have compassion on people. 
We don't look at them with disdain. We don't look at them with frustration. We don't look at them as a time sucker. We look at them as people who God loves. We have compassion on them. Do you think the Samaritan had time to spend with a dead guy, half dead guy on the side of the road? No, of course not. But he takes him and he puts him on his own donkey, right? And he walks him down the road because he acted on his love. So we've got this head up, we've got this kind of taking compassion, and then we have this point where we just have to begin to sometimes just act. Sometimes loving people actually takes you to do something. All three men took action, right? Both first two took action to cross the other side of the road. It wasn't like they walked far. That road's this wide. They just walked. The other one, the action was he saw his need, and he just stepped in, puts him on his donkey, bandages his wounds, puts him up at a hotel. He just acted on his love. And I'm not saying that every person that you see that's got a need or got a whatever, you have to act on all those things. I'm just simply saying that at some point in time when you're going to love people, you have to act on that. If you're going to really love your neighbors, eventually you've got to ask them into your home. You can't just keep saying, hey, we're going to do a better job this year loving our neighbors. At some point in time, you've got to walk out of your front door and bring them in, or I'm going to try and get to know my coworkers. We can say that as many times as you want to, but until you actually invite them into your space or step into theirs, nothing happens. You have to act on love. So you're sitting in a restaurant, and, and, and God prompts you to just ask this person their name. Eventually, you've got to act on that. Like I care enough about you to realize you're not just a person that's serving me, but you've got a name, and you matter. And I'm grateful that you're here. At some point in time, as individuals in a church, we have to act on the love, even when people are really hard to love. Do you think it was easy for me to take this guy, as the Samaritan would do, and put him on my donkey, and take time, my own resources, bandages, wounds, do all those things? That was super convenient. I'm guessing not. Heads up, I've got compassion on people, and I begin to act on love, right? And then finally, what we see the Samaritan do is remarkable because the story could have ended there, right? The story, Jesus could have left the story at, and he had compassion on him and he bandaged his wounds. But guess what Jesus says? He says, he goes to the innkeeper and he says, hey, listen, I've taken care of what I can. If he has any other needs, take care of them. And guess what? I'll come back. And I find this part sort of forgettable, but incredibly important at the same time, which is care enough about people to return. Think about that for a moment. It's one thing to tell somebody that you pray for them. It's a whole other thing to call them three days later and say, how's it going? It's one thing to say, hey man, I know that your, your mom's going in the hospital for this and, and I really you know, hope you're doing okay. It's another thing to show up back in a week and bring dinner. It's one thing to visit a, a restaurant <clears throat> once. It's another thing to go back there a second time and sit in the same section or to go to the same line at the checkout stand every time to see the same barista at wherever you are so that you learn her or his name to go back and go back and go back and remember those things that matter to people. Because when you return, what it tells somebody is that you care. If they're just one stop along a day, along a day, along a day, along a day, then people are just traffic cones that we weave around in our daily task drive. But if you return to those places, it tells them they matter, and it tells them that they matter to the Lord. I want to be a church. <clears throat> Actually, I want, to be a, I want to be a person first. That people matter to me the way they matter to the Lord. 
I want to lift my head up out of my own sort of driven kind of task-oriented road and look around, see people, real people with names and heartbeats. I want to have compassion on their stories. I want to listen to what they're walking through. I want to know what makes their heart beat. I want to have compassion when I need to. I want to let them into my own space. I want to have that act on love that says, if God calls me to love people this way, what is causing me not to? What do I need to let go of? Or how do I change my non-action to act on love? And how do I return to those places so that I build real, meaningful, true relationships? Or maybe it's just enough to know someone that they aren't just a blip on your radar screen, right? I mean, heck, it can be as little as this. I, my mom's birthday was yesterday. Yeah, she was born on Groundhog Day. I get it, okay. So yesterday, she calls her. She's like, you never call me. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't know if you know this, my mom raised me, right? She birthed me and raised me like a real person. I call her like once a month. I demonstrate in that moment, unintentionally, that I've got more important things. And the woman that gave me 40, 39 years, (laughs) times a few, of life, right? Small things matter, man. Small things. I want to be a church like that that we're driven by our love for people, that we love God, we love people because he loves you. So how does this translate all, okay, and then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Okay, great, we're on. How does this translate to our vision for 2019, right? So we talked about depth last, last week. We talked about depth of knowledge of God's word, depth of relationship with Jesus, with people, depth of involvement. The second word I want you to keep in mind that I want to use that's going to drive our sort of desire for 2019, I'll do this all really quickly because we're going to do communion, is, um, is students. Now, I use that word intentionally because I don't want to use the word youth because I think it has some barriers that I don't want to step into because, of course, we care about babies and we care about adults and all those things. But in 2019, I really want to take some of our focus and really think about how we love students. We've got this great thing going with our with our kind of Vine kids. So we've got this section of of students that we have, this sort of preschool, elementary age kind of group of students that God has granted us because families have come and they've either had babies or they brought their babies. And those babies are growing into young people. And we want to be really intentional about how we love those families and how we love those students, how we create opportunities for them to disciple their own children and grow together as family units. And as students can grow having relationships with kids that they go to church with that love the Lord or at least will walk through parts of life with them. We're doing that okay, right? We want to do it better. We want to have family camps where families get to go away together and, and worship together and play together and do all kinds of really great things. They get to know other families together. We want to target that group of students that we already have, right? We know that. They exist over there. We know we've got a bunch of them. We saw them up here on Christmas. They're all there, right? We love that. We've got them. So we want to focus on being more intentional with the students that we have. We want to understand that there's a group of students that we need. Now, if you look around close enough, you'll realize there's a whole segment of people we don't have coming to this church. They mainly fall between about middle, middle school and high school. We don't have any, none. We've got like a handful, couple of middle school kids and almost zero high school kids. Why? I don't know. Maybe it was a church plant. Part of this is sort of the dynamic of growth. But the reality is, is that we're missing a segment of people that we are called to love. We want to begin in 2019 to think about developing the real roots of true, vibrant, exciting youth and student ministry. 
that's reaching middle school and high school kids. Kids before they step into college where families can, can their kids want to be around other students or we're engaging them and thinking of them how to do mission differently or how to think about the world differently. We want to engage that group. Well, that means we have to go and find them or whether we create things that we can go and be a part of their worlds. We want to think differently about that in 2019. By the end of this year, we want to have developed the baseline for what those things look like. And Greg and some folks are doing really cool things with our little middle school group that's kind of grown up, but that's not where we want that to end. We want to go after those kids' friends and their friends, and we want to be a part of a, of a church that has a vibrant ministry to young students, middle school, high school age kids. So we want to be faithful to the ones that we have. We want to identify the ones that we need. And then we also want to be faithful to go after the ones that we're called to pursue. What that means is that we have an incredible opportunity where we sit right here in Oklahoma City in the sort of the saddle of the Health Science Center, Oklahoma City University, some colleges to our north and our south, right? We sit in a saddle of college-age students. Now, they'll tell you, you can read all kinds of books, and they will tell you that the, our college campuses are our largest mission field in the world. That what we can do on the college campus will influence the entire global culture for the gospel. And yet we sit right here on sort of this saddle, right, of college-age kids that are coming from all over the world to really wonderful and incredible universities. Right down here on 23rd Street, right across over here on 23rd Street, we want to be active in reaching and supporting and encouraging and creating fellowship for those students, whether they're health science center students, whether they're in med school or they're PT school or whether they're in nursing school or wherever, or college-age kids that are here from out of town or that are here from other countries that are just here from down the street. The Lord has always brought a handful of those people groups here, but we've never been intentional about how we create space and time for them, fellowship, how we love and nurture them, mentor them, create meals for them, space for them to basically find a place for those three or four years, or in my case, five plus, they can call home, right? We want to do that. We're right here. 2019, as we think about loving people, doesn't mean we don't love our neighbors, doesn't mean we don't love our, our people on the corner, doesn't mean we don't love people in our neighborhood. We can do all that. But we want to take a new focus on how we love students. We're going to do all those things and, and, and those, but we want to focus on that. Next week, we're going to explore the last part of this, which is what does it mean to follow Jesus? As we are a church that engages in supporting mission, going on mission, right? And sending on mission. But this is who your church wants to be. <clears throat> Over the next few weeks, we're going to ask you as families, not as visitors, <clears throat> not as first-timers, to consider how you'll support this church financially. That's what that pledge card exists for. It exists for us to dream about how we can be great stewards with the resources that God has given us. So that's a really important tool that we use because it helps us not only set a budget, but it helps us set mission goals. We're a church that started off giving 10% of all the money that comes into mission. We're now at 15.3. Our goal is to hit 50%. We want to be a church that gives away 50%. Every dollar that comes in, we send a dollar right out the door doing gospel-driven mission work. Right? In our little six years, we've already raised that by 5.3%. Our goal is to keep pushing ourselves until we hit that number. We have to know what the support looks like so we can set those targets, dream about what God is doing. I will say this, and I say this every week. <clears throat> this is not about your money. We don't want a single nickel of your money. Right? We don't. I believe the Lord will support us with or without you. What we want is your heart fully engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if God calls you to support the community that you're involved with, then we want that. But we want your heart given to Jesus. So take that with your family. Spend some time praying over it. In a couple of weeks, we'll tell you about bringing them back, not next weekend, but the weekend after that. 
as we think more about what it means to truly be this church, all of me in, all of us in together, as this community, right, that's about depth and students and other pieces, loving God, loving people, following Jesus. Part of this expression that we get to do together as a community is we get to celebrate this incredible meal. This is the picture of God's most extravagant love. So when we talk about loving God, we truly talk about it. What we're really talking about is what God did for us first. We actually have no understanding of the context of love outside of what God did. In fact, 1 John says the only reason that we know love is because he loved us first. And that love was demonstrated. So we don't even understand what it means to love people outside of what Jesus did for us. This is the demonstration of that incredible picture. It was the love of God poured out. It's the tool that we use to really understand the depth of God's love for humanity and how we're called to live that out as the church. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would be handed over, the night that all would scatter, right, on account of him, he took bread and after giving thanks, he took that loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning, we celebrate by means of intention, which means as you come forward, you take a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, and you eat. We ask you to spend time with the Lord before you come, realizing this is not a habit that we do as a church once a month. It's not just a simple expression of our worship. It is a call to examine our hearts, to confess our sin, to believe that Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself, to ask the Lord to free your heart so that you can share in his absolute and total goodness. And as you feel ready at that point in time to come down front or there'll be a station in the back, share this meal together and then remain standing as we close our time in worship together. I'd invite our servers to come forward this morning as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through communion.